Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today on Night Night Spectre, we hang out with Tarwarit, try to balance our scales, and have a few breakdowns along the way as we discuss the fifth episode of Disney Plus Moon Knight, The Asylum. Welcome to Night Night Spectre, the podcast that explores the stories, characters, and splintered mind of Moon Knight. I'm your host, Elizabeth. And I'm Lawrence. Welcome to the show. We're almost at the very end of Disney Plus' Moon Knight series. And this fifth episode was a lot to take in for a lot of different reasons that we'll get into in a second. But first, let's do some housekeeping. We love to hear from our listeners, so email us at nks at loreparty.com with your thoughts and questions, and you might see them appear on a future episode. You can find Lawrence at produced by underscore LK on Twitter and Twitch. And you can find Elizabeth at it's Rizbiff, I-T-S-R-I-Z-B-I-F on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, you can connect with the Lore Party team on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch at lore underscore party. But before we dive in, if you haven't watched the fifth episode of Moon Knight Asylum on Disney Plus yet, now's the time to pause and go watch it if you don't want any spoilers. Because, like we've been saying from the beginning, this is not live. If, if it was live, uh, you would get to hear all of my good cuts. And honestly, if you haven't watched this episode yet, shame on you because it's freaking great. <laughs> also, yeah, like it's the fifth episode. By this time, you, you know the drill. <laughs> but we also... on. on this episode in particular, we want to make sure that we give you a trigger warning before we get started, as Asylum touches on topics such as a loss of a loved one, child abuse, and suicidal ideations. So they will be talked about in this episode summary and discussed throughout the rest of today's episode. So now that that's covered, let's get into it. As always, we start with a summary. As the episode opens... We see a short montage of water rushing down a cavern, a distraught woman yelling, this is all your fault, the familiar scene of screaming Tawaret, Stephen, and Mark from the previous episode. But the screams of Mark in the white hallway transition us into him screaming in Dr. Harrow's office. We learn from Harrow that in this reality, Mark is a patient at Putnam Medical Facility in Chicago, Illinois. He explains that Mark's been swinging between realities, one being very difficult. He reveals that Mark's been telling him about some of the events in the other reality, like the talking hippopotamus. Harrow has Mark identify whether this is sense or nonsense. When Mark labels it as nonsense, Harrow says that this is encouraging and then explains to Mark that the struggling mind will often build places to seek shelter for different aspects of the self from our most traumatic memories 
which is called an organizing principle. He also speculates that this hippo could help break down walls between Mark and Stephen for some understanding. Harrow explains that before Mark got upset, he was talking about a boy and asked Mark if he could tell him about that little boy. This causes Mark to lash out again, prompting Billy and Bobby to sedate him. We're then taken back to the screaming Mark, Stephen, and Tarwaret in the other reality. Once the screaming stops, Tarwaret asks Mark and Stephen if they're twins, to which Mark responds, no, and Stephen says, sort of. Tarwaret reveals to Mark and Stephen that they're actually quite dead and that they're traveling through the realm of the duet, the Egyptian underworld. When Mark says, this is the afterlife, Tarwaret corrects him by saying this is an afterlife, not the afterlife. She also explains that because the true nature of the duat is incomprehensible for the human mind, they are perceiving it as something more easily recognizable to them. When Stephen asks why it would be a psych ward, Mark responds with, because we're insane. As Mark goes on a rant about why, he opens up the double doors And rather than walking into a room with a bunch of patients like he thought, they're on the deck of a ship sailing through the sands of the duet. In that moment, Mark retracts his previous statement, saying, I'm not crazy, I'm dead. Mark asks Tawaret where she said they were going. Stephen answers that they're sailing to the field of reeds. Tawaret recognizes Stephen as the smart one, and then explains that if your heart is balanced, then you will spend eternity in paradise and reaches into the chest of both Mark and Stephen to pull out their hearts, each looking as if they were made of clear quartz. As she walks away from the two with hearts in hand, Stephen explains to Mark that she's weighing their hearts on the scale of justice against the feather of truth because the ancient Egyptians believed that the heart was a sign of who you really were in life. If the scales balance by the time you end this journey, the soul is permitted to pass into the field of reeds. Towerat reveals that if they don't balance, you're thrown off the boat where the dead will drag you down to the duat, where you'll remain frozen in sand forever. The two walk over to the side of the ship, and as Mark comes up with a possibly worse than Conchu level bad idea for how to get out of the duat, Towerat calls them over to show them that their scales are not balancing. When she picks the hearts up, she feels that they are not full, which is most likely causing the imbalance. Her advice to them is to go back through their memories and show each other the truth. So Mark and Stephen go back inside the ship. After Stephen again shoots down the idea to kill Tarwaret, Mark attempts to deter Stephen from looking at his memories. We see that each room contains a memory, and Mark tells Stephen that his memories are a frickin' mess. Stephen, looking at Moon Knight beating the jackal in the museum bathroom, says, Yeah, mine too. Stephen then walks away to another room with a memory that is also familiar to him, but when they get to a room where the memory seems to be Mark standing on a sidewalk next to a car taking a swig from a flask, it's unfamiliar to Stephen. So he asks Mark if he remembers, to which Mark deflects. They then, in the distance, hear a boy yell help, and Stephen rushes through some double doors to investigate. They enter what Stephen describes as a creepy calf filled with dead bodies. The bodies turn out to be those Mark has killed. He explains to Stephen that they were all the worst of the worst, and killing them is what Kanchu meant by protecting the travelers of the night. He admits that he kept wishing that he would fail and one of these people would kill him instead. But the healing of the suit ended up being the curse. 
Steven interrupts Mark to show him that the scales are slowing down. But when Mark asks what they do next, Steven notices a little boy standing in the room. Against Mark's objection, Steven goes after the boy and follows him into a memory of Mark's locking the door behind him. When Steven turns around, he sees their mom, young Mark, and the little boy Steven followed, who we learn is Mark's younger brother, Roro, drawing a fish with one fin, and their dad. The brothers get up to go to the cave, but before they leave, their mom asks Mark, what do you do? Nan says, keep an eye on your brother. Mark nods, says, laters, gators, and his mom responds, in a while, crocodile. Stephen follows the two through a field as they discuss which of the characters from Tomb Buster they're going to pretend to be. When Roro picks Rosser, Mark says he'll be Dr. Stephen Grant, which confuses Stephen. Suddenly, it starts to rain, and Roro reminds Mark that their mom said not to go in the cave when it's raining. But in older brother fashion, Mark says it'll be fine and not to be a baby. So the two head into the cave. Stephen follows inside, first stepping on a skeleton of a bird before entering the cave, and then notices that there's water rushing into the cave fast and yells for the boys to get out of there. Stephen goes in deeper, trying to reach the kids to help them out. We hear young Mark yell for Roro. We then go back to current day Mark in the hallway, who is trying to self-soothe by repeating to himself that it's just a memory. He then looks over to the room to his left to see his brother Shiva. Mark enters the room and makes his way over to his parents. As he reaches them, he noticed a drenched and clearly distraught Stephen standing next to the stairs. After hearing their mother say that she wants Roro back, young Mark comes down the stairs. Once his mother notices him, she asks him what he's doing there and proceeds to blame him for his brother's death, yelling at him that this is all his fault. Meanwhile, current-day Mark is trying to get Stephen to leave the room, but Stephen doesn't listen and follows young Mark up the stairs into a different memory. In this one, their dad is pleading up the stairs for their mother to come join them, that they're just about to blow out the candles, but she doesn't come down. Stephen goes up the stairs again to yet another birthday memory. This one, however, does include their mom. With drink in hand, she tells Mark that he is always jealous of Roro and that she should have known that he would do something like this. Upset by this, young Mark rushes upstairs and Stephen follows. But just as he's about to go into young Mark's room, current day Mark grabs him and pulls him away. The two are now standing in the middle of the street outside of the house. Stephen struggles to get away from Mark asking why he's remembering their mom that way, saying that she wasn't like that, asking what he's hiding. We then see a teenage Mark walking down the street with duffel bag in hand and their dad following him, pleading for him not to go. But teenage Mark tells him that he's supposed to fix this and asks why he hasn't, to which his dad doesn't answer, but says, I cannot lose another son. As Stephen watches, current day Mark tackles Stephen, sending them into another memory. This one in a desert surrounded by dead bodies. As Stephen looks at all that's around them, he tells Mark that Harrow said he was a mercenary that killed hostages. Mark asks him if he believes that. And Stephen says, yeah, I wouldn't put it past you. Disappointed by that answer, Mark scoffs and then reveals that he was discharged from the military after going AWOL in a fugue state and that mercenary work was one of the only options for him after that. So he went work for hire for his old CEO, Bushman. He then explains to Stephen that the memory that they're in right now was a result of a job that he took to raid an Egyptian tomb. 
Bushman changed the plan, called for no witnesses, and he couldn't live with that. After Stephen identifies Layla's dad as one of the bodies, Mark says that he tried to get them all away, but they didn't make it, clearly. Stephen then asks what happened to Mark, and Mark points to a tomb. We then see a bloody and injured Mark crawling towards the statue of Kanchu in the tomb. As he reaches the steps leading to the statue, Mark pulls out his gun and places it under his chin. But before Mark could continue, we hear Kanchu say, what a waste, and that he feels the pain inside of Mark. After Kanchu introduces himself to Mark, he explains that he's looking for a warrior to be his final word against evildoers. He then makes Mark an offer. In exchange for your life, do you swear to protect the travelers of the night and bring my vengeance to those who would do them harm? After hearing this, Stephen points out that Kanchu has been manipulating Mark from the start and taking advantage of him. But Mark questions whether it was that or if it was just a way for him to keep being what he's always been, a killer. Memory Mark then accepts the offer and with Kanchu standing behind him, turns into Moon Knight before Stephen and current day Mark. Stephen then notices something going on outside and takes Mark back to the ship's deck to see that Ahmed's judgment has started. The two then plead with Tawaret to help them get back and get word to Layla to free Kanchu as it's their only shot. Tawaret then reroutes the ship to Osiris's gate since that's the only path back and tells them to go back inside. Once inside the ship, Mark tries to convince Stephen that they don't have to go back through the memories, that they can just have a conversation about what happened. But Stephen disagrees, stating that Mark's about to lose everything, that tons of people will die, and if Layla dies, that's on him. Mark starts to unravel a bit, screaming that you can't make me, and slapping his face repeatedly. As that's happening, we're taken back to Dr. Harrow's office, where Harrow is actively trying to calm Mark down. Once Mark realizes where he is, he relaxes a little. Harrow says that he's proud of Mark for the difficult work that he's been doing, for reliving his traumatic experiences. He then asks Mark, do you think you created Stephen to hide from all the awful things you feel you've done in your life? Or do you think Stephen created Mark to punish the world for what your mother did to you? Mark continues to be silent, and Harrow then says, there's only one way to know. You're going to have to open up to Stephen. There can be no progress without understanding. We're then taken back into the birthday memory that Mark pulled Stephen out of. We see young Mark sitting on the floor of his room in front of his dresser, while current day Mark is standing across the room. Stephen steps out from behind him. Stephen says that he knows that this is his room, but he doesn't remember this. Suddenly, we hear their mom loudly knocking on the door. Young Mark sits, holding his knees, repeatedly saying, it's not my mom as she continues to bang on the door and tell him to open it. We then witness young Mark switch to young Stephen, who is concerned about the state of the room and starts to clean up while their mom still pounds on the door for Mark to open up. Current day Stephen then notices the Tomb Buster poster with Dr. Stephen Grant's tagline on it and says, you made me up as the door bursts open. As their mom says, you're going to learn to listen, she takes a belt hanging in the room in her hands. Young Stephen is unresponsive to her as she walks closer, and he continues to pick up the room. Their mom then says, why do you make me do this as current day Mark takes current day Stephen out of the room? As he's taken out, he says repeatedly that he wants to see what she did. But Mark continues to pull him out and tells him that he's not meant to see that. That's the whole point of him. 
Stephen is quiet for a moment, then punches Mark in the face, questioning what he just said. Stephen admits he thought the entire time that he was the original, but now knows he was made up. Mark tells him that he got to live a happy, simple, normal life. Stephen says, but it was all a lie, to which Mark questions, how's that not better than the alternative of remembering the truth? And in this response, Mark reveals to Stephen that their mother is dead. He starts to freak out, repeating, let me out over and over until we see he is now the one in Dr. Harrow's office. When Harrow realizes that it's Stephen before him, he says that it's good to see him and that he was beginning to worry that they might never get to speak again. And in line with previous experiences in this office, Stephen questions Harrow's credentials. Harrow asks if Mark had a chance to open up to Stephen like he asked him to do. Stephen tells him that what Mark did was lie to him. Harrow then reveals that Stephen was the one that brought them to the hospital after their mother passed. Still in denial over their mother's death, Stephen unsurprisingly does not take that well, claiming her to still be alive. Harrow then offers to call his mother so they can talk. And even though Stephen tells him not to bother her, a call is made. Once Mrs. Grant is on the line, Harrow holds the phone out to Stephen and asks him if he wants to talk to his mom. With tears rolling down his face, Stephen takes the phone in hand, but continues to hold it in front of him. He then finally accepts that Mark wasn't lying and says that his mom is dead. We're then taken back into a memory, the first memory that Stephen questioned if Mark remembered. There's a picture of their mom framed on a table. Their dad notices Mark through the window, standing across the street, taking a swig from a flask. Once their dad reaches the window, he motions for Mark to come in, but Mark shakes his head and starts walking back down the street. We then see that Stephen is here as well, watching Mark as he stumbles down the street crying, and when Mark falls to his knees in anguish, Stephen kneels down in front of him. He watches as Mark takes off his yarmulke and smashes it on the ground, but then holds it to his chest and apologizes as he sways back and forth crying. And as Mark finally looks up, we see him switch to Stephen, who is incredibly confused as to where he is and then calls his mom to tell her that he's done it again. We now see that current day Mark is here, who tells Stephen that this is the moment that their lives started bleeding together. Stephen tries to console Mark, telling him that the things their mom said to him were wrong, that it wasn't his fault. But Mark, getting increasingly emotional, says, I shouldn't have brought him in that cave. Stephen then rests a hand on Mark's shoulder and says, hey, you were just a child. It wasn't your fault. This healing moment is then interrupted by a small earthquake-like rumble. The two then go to the ship's deck to see that they've reached the gates of Osiris and ask Tauret what's happening. She informs them that unfortunately, their scales never balanced. She can't prevent what happens next and that she was really rooting for them, but the unbalanced souls of the Duat must now claim them. As unbalanced souls start climbing into the ship, Mark tells Stephen to hide. However, the souls are too much for Mark. He's nearly thrown over the ship quickly, but Stephen adjusting the direction of the ship gives Mark the opportunity to free himself from the unbalanced souls. Stephen cheers on Mark, telling him that he's got this, and then has a realization that if he's Mark, he's got this too. Stephen then joins the fight against the undead. But as Mark goes to stand up, another unbalanced soul comes from over the side of the ship to drag Mark down. Stephen then runs across the deck, but in the process of trying to save Mark, falls overboard himself. 
The two yell for each other. Mark yells to stop the boat and then yells for Stephen to run. But as Stephen tries to follow the ship, he's slowly paralyzed from the sand until he can't walk anymore, falls to his knees, and as he's reaching out for Mark, his body's frozen in the sand. Just then, the scales stop moving. Towerat reappears to say the scales have balanced, and then we see Mark no longer on the ship, but standing in the field of reeds. Which concludes the episode. Bum, bum, bum. So just as we've done in every episode, we want to talk about now our overall thoughts and some of the character development that we noticed. I said previously that the fourth episode of Moon Knight was my favorite, but that the fifth would most likely take that title. And I can't say for sure that it has because it absolutely wrecked me the first time I watched it through. But it's an extremely well done episode. And if Oscar Isaac doesn't win every single award possible for his performance in this episode alone, I will be absolutely done with everything. You know, I kind of, I feel the same way. It's refreshing to see, honestly, that Moon Knight continues to to trend upwards. Like, I think that it's at, at this point, most other shows would have like one episode that wasn't great or one episode that you didn't like but this show continues to to just get better and better and outdo itself each episode which is is like nothing short of miraculous and very refreshing to see um i do agree that like this episode was nothing short of award-winning you know just in a kind of a short time the episode like beautifully gives us mark's long-awaited origin story and it's not just as moon knight but as like a person that's subject to unspeakable guilt and trauma by those who are supposed to protect him. Like I've heard criticism of the show's handling of Mark's DID before. And this episode really like handles that well. Like it, it really aimed to lay his personal traumas bare for everyone else to see. Like I've never felt so emotionally drained connected and empathetic for and character in the MCU than I have for Mark Spector, which is honestly a testament to Oscar Isaac's acting. And although, you know, Jake was teased once again, I'd have to say that my favorite thing about this episode, minus the hat tips to the Lemire run, was that just as many questions that have been answered are how many mysteries that have now unfolded. And so with just one more episode left in the series. Like, I have to ask, like, what is next? Because there's a lot that needs to be wrapped up. So hopefully that means a season two. It better mean a season two. <laughs> we know that we have our our own, you know, personal thoughts. Uh, we're going to tend, like, we're going to kind of take a deeper look at some of the character development in this episode and we're going to start with Mark. So Mark, th throughout this episode, goes through a lot of emotional turmoil. He is definitely riding an emotional roller coaster as he's facing these very key traumatic points in his life that not only have made him as the person he is today, but have like literally made Steven. Yeah, and we see that like just exactly how the experiences in Mark's life bleed into his sense of justice. And we also see that Mark is really just a person that's never been able or never really been given the opportunity to forgive himself and like to face the, you know, face the things that he's dealt with in his life. And this was like such an incredible experience to see that. 
Yeah, it was very clearly therapeutic to him. Like he needed to go and do this introspective work, even if, you know, it was with Dr. Harrow and going through this stuff after, you know, while he's in the Duat. Yeah, no, exactly. I think um, like just uh, like honestly, like hats off because like this was very like this is a very honest episode. Like, they didn't really hold anything back. And I think it just really makes a lot of things that have happened in the show so far make more sense. And, I mean, like, even with, even with um, you know, Stephen himself, like we see in this episode, that, you know, we see a ton of growth in Stephen. Like, he really is, like, the anchor in this episode. Like his whole existence is pretty much turned upside down and he has to not only deal with the fact that he was the one that was created, but he also has to deal with the fact that his mom is dead too. Um, You know, we see even though he's like experiencing his own traumas through this episode, he's still like very integral in, in helping balance the scales so they can get back to save the world from, uh, Arthur and Ahmet and uh, to make sure that Layla's okay. Like even with everything that he goes through, he's still um, like continues to push forward. And like the, the best thing about Steven in this episode is that he is the person that offers Mark the thing that like no one else did. He was the one who told him that like the traumas that happened in his life and the loss of his brother weren't his fault, which was like my favorite scene because I'm like, Mark, what, like I mentioned, Mark was never given the opportunity to forgive himself. And so it's very ironic that you see this, um, you know, the separate personality that Mark has created, taking on that role and forgiving Mark and, you know, telling Mark that he needs to forgive himself. So I really appreciated that. And then we move on to the worst character in this episode. I would argue that just a little bit, but yes, she's trash. We'll say like top five. (laughs) (laughs) The worst character that's not a desert zombie or like already been killed. Oh, I see. I was thinking about their dad. Oh, yeah. I mean, I put he's 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 a nice person. But he's an enabler for what's going on, which I would put, is arguably just as bad. I put him at number two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would put him at number two. But so, like, oh, you know, all jokes aside, like, we witnessed Mark's mom as a, as a, Mark's mom when he was a child go through something that no parent wants to go through, which is the loss of a child. And she really struggles with dealing with it and never honestly gets the the help that she needs. Like after, after her son, um, Ronald or Roro, uh, unexpectedly drowns while in Mark's care because the two are out playing in a cave that was behind their house during a rainstorm. Um, you know, she kind of she she never really moves past this and instead she just projects these, these feelings of anger and resentment and hatred onto mark her surviving son and at the time 
when this initially happens, he's eight, which is like something that if you I mean if you've watched the show, you've noticed. But if you haven't watched the show or listened to the podcast, this is an eight year old kid that is getting the the it's not only dealing with the fact that his brother drowned in front of him, but that his mom is like hates him and and is basically resenting him for something that was well outside of the control of any eight-year-old anywhere um she needs someone to blame and the only person that she can think to blame is the only other person that was there right right and the reason why like you know we we put the dad into this category also is because like mark's dad is very nice, but Mark's dad doesn't do anything in the situation and therefore contributes to it. Like Mark's dad doesn't do anything to try to get help for Mark's mom. And he actively takes a step back while she's like in her worst moments with her child to the point where it basically just drives the family apart. Like again, as weird as it is, this was very honest. This was this was a great episode because parts like this were very honest. Like this is ha- this happens with people. Like I'm I'm glad that they showed that it's not only just a person that's acting in aggression that can cause harm, but it's the people that are aware of it that don't do anything. Yeah, and so that was like. Like, honestly, one of, uh, you know, we, we see, we've talked about in our summary that we do see Mark as a child and like the favorite scene of like teenage Mark is, you know, him leaving presumably for the military and his dad is like trying to stop him. And he tells his dad that, you know, you, you should, you're supposed like he, his dad is telling him that he'll get his mom help but his mark's response to him is that you should have fixed this like this was your thing to fix and it it was like mark was just a kid he didn't deserve all that and uh it's honestly up until this point when he's seemingly dead is a has basically steered the course of his entire life which is crazy right and i don't want to like downplay the fact that like their dad lost a son too like he is also grieving the same way that their mom is clearly the two handle it differently and i don't want to put like all of the responsibility on the dad to like fix everything but like if you're handling it clearly way better than your wife is someone needs to do something or maybe like i don't know I mean, everybody has to stop. Family least, therapy is a thing. At least everybody has to stop leaning on the fact, on, on a child to yeah. support everything. Because basically both parents are standing on the back of their surviving son as like, like, like I, got, I was like, this is way more emotional responsibility than like anybody needs, but especially not your kid. Like your, your eight-year-old kid through the majority of his life. Because we see that this is something that uh, is also causes the the scales to stay unbalanced this is like a huge portion of it but you know with that being said this was definitely one of the heavier topics to cover in this episode so we're going to take a quick ad break right here and we'll be back in a moment 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, now that we are back, let's get into some character quotes. Our first one from Dr. Harrow is there can be no progress without understanding. Which, this was a funny quote because this was like the uh, similar or opposite of what he said at the end of the last episode. It can't help anybody. I won't help themselves. This is like, <laughs> this is like the proper way to say that. Um, but I honestly think that this is, this is a super, um, this is a super impactful quote considering everything that is dealt with in this episode. I feel like it's just literally the theme of this episode. It's yeah. like... Stephen and Mark need to understand what's going on in order for them to move forward. Yep. And this is how they uh, balance their skills by understanding the situation and understanding that understanding it and understanding in this episode is multifaceted because it's not just no way for Stephen. It's knowing an event happened for Mark. It's understanding that even though he carries that guilt, it's not his fault. And he was actually, like, treated poorly because of it. So I do like the um, that understanding carries, like, different meanings depending on, you know, the character in this Absolutely. episode. And so our next cool, cool character quote is, um, is from Mark. And it was one we actually mentioned before the break. Uh, this was from Teenage Mark when he was heading to the when he was heading off to the army, presumably, and his dad was trying to stop him, he said, you're supposed to fix this. I mean, why haven't you? Which, I put this quote in here because, like, I feel like this sums up a lot of what we see with Mark's personality. Like, this is a key contributor to, like, why Mark takes on that that lone wolf sort of um that lone wolf mentality like the that layla mentions like oh mark would just go in here by himself mark would do everything by himself because mark hasn't really had anybody that he is able to depend on yeah like everybody we see that everybody who has been around mark besides layla has um basically let him down, manipulated him, or led him astray. Um, And so, like, it's, like, I feel like it just kind of started in this moment. Like, him saying to his dad that you were supposed to have been the one that fixed this. And, like, why hasn't he yet? And his dad couldn't give him an answer. And I don't think his dad ever really gave him an answer throughout the course of his mother's life. No, and I don't honestly think that he has an answer. It's it, to me it, it to me it really feels like well, if nobody's going to do this or if no one's going to help with this, I'll just do it myself. Which I can say personally in my life, I have definitely 
had that stance with certain things. So I mean, like this is a childhood trauma one on one when you don't have parents that you can lean on, you develop this sense of independence where you cannot lean on anybody and you have to lean on yourself. So this is very much like expected for the traumas that, you know, Mark went through as a kid into, you know, his teenage years until he left. And then we'll talk about this later, but when he does finally, I don't even say, well, we'll say uh, the times after that, when he did try to trust people, it didn't go well. Both times he was manipulated. It was Layla that's really been, like we mentioned, Layla's only been been the one person that has kind of been true in her support of Mark and unfortunately is also dealing with Mark's lack of um, confidence in anyone being in his corner. Um, but with that, our, our next character quote comes from Dr. Harrow. Do you think you created Stephen to hide from all the awful things you feel you've done in your life? Or do you think Stephen created Mark to punish the world for what your mother did to you? I think when I heard this, I was like, objection, leading the witness. <laughs> like, I feel like this is a very interesting question to ask. Yeah, no, I think this, I, I liked this question. I liked this question a lot. Um, because the answer is a little bit of both. Like, Stephen, Stephen was definitely created to, um, so that Mark could hide from the awful things that he was blamed for and the awful things that he believed he had done in this world. The things that, like, and that, uh, you know, he was made to believe uh, caused him to incur, like, his mother's wrath. And then I would say at the same time, um, because of that protection, Mark developed this, like, kind of standoffish, uh, like, kind of lone wolf independence mentality. Um, and uh, he did, I would say for, for, it seemed like at least a bit in this, it seemed like a, at least a little bit in this episode that um, part of it was uh, at least he maybe rationed it out like he was taking um, vengeance on the world. He might not have necessarily blamed it on his mother, but like when he said, like there was a, uh, a quote that we'll get into, but there was something that he said when they viewed him turning into Moon Knight for the first time where Mark had basically, I don't know if he totally believes this, but he was just like, well, maybe I did it because, you know, I can keep doing this this thing and keep being a killer. And like, it was just a good test. It was like a good, um, it was just how Mark views himself. Mark doesn't view himself as a good person. Like even Arthur Harrow said in a previous episode that Mark views himself as someone that's undeserving of love. Like, I liked this quote because I honestly feel like there's a little bit of truth to both parts. 
Yeah, I could see that. I think for me, like, Stephen wasn't created to hide the awful things that Mark has done. It was to hide from the effects of those things that he, like, that he regrets doing or feels like it was his fault. See, I don't take it in a literal sense that that way. I say I see it more like um, Mark believes he's done all of those those horrible things. That's why why I kind of liked this quote and that it was presented to him and in the situation where he was like kind of like moving between realities, where it was like Mark believes Mark is hearing what he believes about himself in this moment yeah because mark was so adamant about keeping steven away from that room because of like steven wasn't supposed to see that that stuff because that's not what he was created to to do true and so that was uh that was kind of my 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 feelings why i thought this was like such a like a weird but cool quote to put in here yeah definitely and so our next quote is from Kanchu. This comes from uh, the. This actually comes from the origin of Moon Knight. Uh, we see Kanchu ask Mark, "Do you want death, or do you want life?" And this is such a loaded question. Now, this I will say is a very loaded, loaded and leading question because, regardless of of what Mark would choose in the moment, it would either be you know, bleed out or commit suicide in this, in this tomb, having felt like, you know, you're a failure in life. You're, you know, you killed your brother. You're this, you're that. Um, or it's to live, live a life manipulated, live a life to be manipulated by this God who's got like a tenuous grasp on what real justice is at best. Like he's basically a meat puppet and Kanchu can't make it any clearer that he's taking advantage of Mark. Like, Mark really doesn't have a choice. Mark doesn't get to choose anything. It's like, I can help you right now because you need me. But, like, had he had this conversation with Kanchu before Bushman, uh, you know, did what he did at that dig site, the answer would have definitely been different. I feel like the real question should have been, do you want death or do you want servitude? Yeah. <laughs> because he definitely just needed another body. And Mark was that body. And he was like, Kanchi was even like, you know, your um, mind is fractured and broken. And it like, like it's just Kanchi was basically just like baiting him and also like kind of tearing him down at the same time. So it wasn't a great start to Moon Knight, but it was very conju. But it was, it was an interesting quote because like it's just further shows like like I mentioned earlier about, you know, those times afterwards where Mark, I guess, loosely connected with people. First was C.O. Bushman, who killed a bunch of people, even though Mark definitely objected and apparently tried to kill Mark, too, or nearly killed Mark. Um, and then you have Conchu. Who it's like, hey man, here's this deal that's really good, but it's definitely too good to be true. And like, now you're gonna be my servant. 
Like Mark has never had an, a, a good connection. And by God, the fact that Layla worked out afterwards is like almost like a miracle for this man because everyone up to this point, like we got to, you got to start seeing like how crazy it is when it's like goes your parents, your commanding officer, and then a God. Like that's something that's like on a whole different plane that's still doing the same thing. So like, it's a very, like it's, I, it's no wonder that this man is as closed off as he is. Um, and that he could even, that he was even able to make it through, you know, these trials and balancing the skills in this episode, because like, that's a lot of shit. It is so much. Our next quote comes from the time where Stephen and Mark are watching Mark's origin as Moon Knight. And Stephen talks to Mark about how he's being manipulated and Mark just responds like, or it was just a way for me to remain what I've always been a killer. It's like really some like hitting home, really cementing the fact that, you know, Mark thinks little of himself, but he blames himself for, you know, the death of his brother and thinks that the only thing that he's good for in this world is like killing others. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, I mean, serving Kanju sucks. Like serving Kanju doesn't, isn't, isn't great. It's, it's like, murder with the fresh you know, coat of justice paint <laughs> like is very is very just like I, I need you to murder some people which it's like yeah you're murdering some people that do crazy things so there's a little bit of ambi- ambiguity there but like um i think like like yes like you mentioned this is just mark viewing himself in the lowest the lowest possible way and this is comes after Mark tries to save a bunch of people, but fails. Like Mark isn't a, it, it was ironic that Mark called himself a killer there because Mark literally tried to save a whole dig site of people from getting killed. Right. Because he didn't believe in it. Like part of the reason why Mark takes up the mantle of Moon Knight is because he, it does offer him an opportunity to protect people and I know that that is directly related to not being able to protect his brother and not being able to protect these people. Yeah, it's a, a a way for him to kind of, you know, repent. Right. And even if that repent, even if repenting means working for a manipulative chicken. But it's like it's it's it is so crazy. I mean, it's not crazy, but it's it's just like so telling how. How much the experiences in in Mark's life have impacted his view of himself. Like being told every day that he killed his brother and that he probably did it because he was jealous does have a toll on him and it never went away. No, it didn't. Like clearly as we we see throughout this entirety of this episode, it definitely like weighs on him then. Which I guess is a good segue into the last quote that we have from Stephen, which is, hey, you were just a child. It wasn't your fault. What you mentioned earlier, this was fantastic part of the episode. This, this is honestly my favorite quote of the entire episode. Like, this is 100% what Mark needed to hear. He okay. needed to 
have someone tell him that it was okay and that it wasn't his fault. Like, he was allowed to be a kid and allowed to make mistakes, even if that mistake caused something really horrible to happen, and that the adults in his life shouldn't be blaming him for that. But I think it's even more impactful, like we kind of said before, that it's coming from Stephen, like, mirroring himself. Like, after all of the the kind of, like, self-hatred that Mark has adopted over the years, like, what better person to tell you, um, you know, that it isn't your fault than yourself? Like, like, it's good. And I think, like, that just really helps Mark forgive himself. Absolutely. And, like, that was that was the kind of cherry on top for this episode because like saying that Mark needed to hear that was a, is an understatement. Absolutely. This is like the first, the first step in his journey to like recovery and like forgiveness of himself. But like it, it was kind of a breakthrough moment for him. And I think the most impactful part was like that Stephen did this after dealing with all of this shit, like figuring, finding out that you've been created and then that, the memories of your mom that you have being such like a great person aren't real. And the fact that um, your mom that you really love so much is dead. Right. Steven went through all stages of grief very rapidly for a lot of different things. By the time that he gets to this, he is con- he is in acceptance with the fact that his mother is dead and that, he like is and you know at, for like like he says made up and at the same time he didn't lash out at mark and it's not like steven wasn't capable of that because until steven understood what mark went through he basically chastised him for killing people all the time right and that's like where he's like coming to this acceptance like there's no like ill will towards anything else like he understands the situation fully which goes back to our uh Dr. Harrow quote, there could be no progress without understanding, which was fantastic. But with that, we're going to jump into everyone's favorite part of these episodes, which is our burning questions section. Um, so I'll kick it off. Who do you think that Dr. Harrow was meant to represent? Besides Ned Flanders. Ultimately, just Ned Flanders. Because <laughs> I, I was think I was thinking about this a bit, and I've got my head cannon, my not thought out, not fleshed out head cannon theory. Let's hear it. Um, that the um, experience of of Doctor Harrow was an was is a part of the the balancing of the scales. Like they knew that, you know, Towerette was like you need to go and and you know face your face your memories and like be honest with one another and that's how you'll balance the scales and i honestly feel like that he was the human personification of that the um what was it the scales of of what were what were the scales called the scales scales of of justice yeah, the scales of justice. I feel like he was supposed to represent the scales of justice, which makes sense since he walked around with the scales tattoos and Ahmet and everything. But I really feel like he was there to represent the true scales of justice. He was there to really 
push Mark to confront himself as he really is instead of this depiction of him of himself that Mark's built up over the years. Um, and it was it was cool switching between that so rapidly, but you didn't understand what was going on. But like, you know, I mean, it's all up to interpretation. But honestly, that's what I felt like he was there. Like we go from that, the, you know, the, again, we talk about that duality. We go from good or evil Arthur Harrow, who believes he has good intentions to decently good Arthur Harrow, who's who's legitimately trying to provide help. And uh, like who is getting Mark to confront himself and then getting Stephen to confront Mark about things. And like each time he appeared and brought them with them and they came back, their scales balanced a little bit more. So, I mean, before I was like, ah, oh, maybe he's just like a jackass in disguise or something, but is offered legitimate help. Part of me still thinks... It is at like Harrow just fucking with Mark while he's in the duat with whatever power that Ahmet can can help him with. But I would like to think that it is like more than that. Like it because they're like you're right. There's like legitimate help that comes from the conversations that they have. Um, I wouldn't even put it past the writers to have it be like well Towerette says like you cannot perceive like the true nature of the duat so it's going to be something that's like familiar to you and something that is familiar to Mark is having two separate places where he kind of exists yeah um so they both could have they both legitimately could have been trying to help that with the one place holding all the memories and the second place just being this therapeutic space where he can talk through stuff. Yeah. So it's very, very, um, really a very interesting like twist on the Lemire run. And, uh, I very much appreciated it. I thought that, um, like this duality of, of like therapy, Harrow and world conquering cult leader Harrow that you have that are both, equally poetic and stoic but one is actually doing something or seemingly doing more than the other next questions that we have are about our boy jake and are we getting more teasers of him like did we get to see jake try try to beat harrow's ass with a glass pyramid while in his office and was mark's fugue state that got him discharged from the military, actually, Jake? Since Mark has, as far as we're aware, no knowledge that Jake exists yet. Yeah. And I mean, which which still, like we both know, uh, kind of plays into the comics nice because, like, Stephen Grant did come along when Mark was a child in the comics. And, like, Jake came along later in life. Mm-hmm. But, like, it does seem like, and I mean, the internet and reddit have been going crazy about the fact that like the there was a change in the accent slightly and the mannerisms and and the anger like mark didn't try to like just murder someone with like randomly murder somebody with a uh, glass pyramid like i think that if anything i mean we know that in the comic books that jake is the one who like kind of goes all out um and 
it would make sense that Jake is like supposed to be the embodiment of all of that rage and anger that Mark has uh, from his childhood experiences. And so like the fact that uh, once Harrow mentions the boy, which we know is Mark's brother, he goes into an angry like fit of rage and tries to tries to stab Harrow. And it also seemed like he tried to stab himself at a point. But like that would make sense that that is Jake. And also that really, really, really thick Chicago accent. <laughs> I was like, this is gruff. And it was like almost had like the Frank Castle. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. But yeah, and like like our, the second part of the question, just like, you know, was Mark's fugue state that got him discharged from the military actually Jake? And I think that is quite possible. I feel like it might be. Because like Mark never like we still haven't seen Mark go extra ham on a person in this show. Like we saw him slap a bunch of people, but like those were slaps. The only thing that we've seen him like go really ham on was that jackal in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, like that's the like the only, I mean, and I guess a bunch of the um uh one guy's bodyguards, but at the same time they were trying to kill them and they didn't have a choice. So like I think Mark shows restraint when necessary. Um, and going AWOL in a fugue state, it's probably not showing <laughs> it's probably not showing restraint when necessary. Right. Which is very which is classic uh Jake. So our, our next question, you know, moving on from the last one, uh, is why did their dad not come outside the entire time Mark was breaking down in the street? The man saw him and waved him into the house and Mark who was clearly drinking alcohol, basically was like, no, I'm not going to give her the satisfaction, and then stumbles down the street and falls to the ground, has a nervous breakdown. And this whole time, his dad just didn't come outside. Right, like, I know that there's a shiva going on right now, but, like, your son is very clearly distraught. I would have immediately went outside. Plus, you know your son left. You haven't seen your son... I'm imagining he hasn't seen his son since his son left to go to the military. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, he's not, he know he's, he's here. Your other son is no longer with you and your wife is gone. And you know what she did to him because you know why he left. So I'm like, why would you not just like, I like you have no family members at this point. He also may just generally be ashamed of the things that he didn't do. That he doesn't think that Mark would want him to come after him. But still, he I, I feel like seeing your son break down, whether whether he wanted you to be out there or not as a parent, I think you're a little bit obligated to go see what's wrong with your son breaking down the middle of the street. And I know it was like a nod to try to highlight the complex relationships between Mark and his dad in the comics, which are like, I mean, in the comics, it's like, Mark has his idea of justice and it does not align with his dad's uh, version of justice because it ends up hurting people. But we know that's not the case this time. We know that his dad is just more like almost so passive that he doesn't really take action when he should. Right. We also know like from the comics, Mark's dad had his own mental health issues that he was dealing with as well. Yeah. So it definitely is a very complex situation. Yeah. So, Mark's dad not doing anything. I mean, we know Mark's dad 
you know, there's no there's no way to debate that Mark's dad doesn't like love and care for him because we know he does. He's just not very good at showing and complex emotions. He has a very basic, like, let's just try to be happy <laughs> kind of guy. And I like it really shoots him in the foot a lot. Yeah. And that's just how he is as a person. It's yeah. like just doesn't it just doesn't particularly work well in the, the situation that life has put him and his child in. Yeah, so hopefully we get to see more of Mark's dad in in the future. And hopefully, hopefully they get some something where they can just talk for a second. Yeah. Yeah. So the next question I wrote down on here. And uh, it is a little bit headcanon. Is the dead bird that Steven steps on in front of the cave a connection to Kanchu or just sort of a false lead or a hat tip to the comics? And I only put this in there because we know from the comics that Kanchu actually appears to Mark as a child. And I like that it was just, oh, there happened to be this bird skeleton here. The head looks like Kanchu. Like, is this, is there some deeper meaning in, in this since this is just a memory? Is this some, there's some deeper meaning where like, Kanchu was always prepared for this or always seeking out Mark like he did in the comics? Or is this just a dead bird? Who knows? I absolutely don't think it's just a dead bird. I, you cannot have a... Whole ass a, bird skeleton just laying there. An actual, just a baby conchu head, just like laying there without it meaning something. Whether it is like conchu's always been a little bit around, or like maybe somehow conchu's reaching out to him from his shop. D. I don't know, but like I don't think it's just a bird to be a bird. Well, we do know from the series that conchu is always stocking backups because. He's like, he could even be with Arthur Harrow or whoever he was with at the time. But we know that even when he was with Mark, he was I on Layla. And it was used as leverage. Who knows if like Kanchu just doesn't have contingency plans because I'm pretty sure he just cares about justice and not about the people who, you know, he are his eyes and ears and body and whatnot. So like maybe, maybe it was something where he's keeping tabs on Mark or he was, you know, Seeing how seeing how he developed, or he maybe he just had an interest in Mark because of um, the dissociative identity disorder or the potential. So, who knows? But yeah, I thought that was like that was very interesting that the bird skull was just there. So our next question is: Why did Mark scales balance after Stephen was frozen in the sand? And let us preface this question and the next question were questions that we saw a bunch of people ask. So many people ask. So like my, my personal thought about why Mark's scales balance after Stephen was frozen in the sand is because after, you know, going through the memories, understanding what happened and coming to peace with the things that happened in Mark's life, his trauma, um, and Stephen understanding how he came to be and why he was there in the first place. The only thing that kept Mark unbalanced was the fact that Stephen Grant was still present. Like, I don't want to say that he didn't need Stephen. It was just that 
there wasn't much of a use for Stephen in his life at this moment. As someone who's dead and heading towards, you know, potential paradise and and there and one of many afterlives. So like there's not really a necessarily a need for for Stephen anymore because those scales are balanced. Mark's heart is full and the creation of Stephen I guess potentially came from the fact that Mark's heart wasn't full because of the childhood trauma and all of his experiences. So that's my take on why his scales balance, because I think that last piece that kept it swaying was Mark's attachment to, to Stephen. I think kind of similarly to that, I think part of it is the fact that Stephen and Mark kind of switched roles at the end yeah. where Stephen was the savior to and like the the person that's doing the fighting and everything and Mark didn't need to do really anything like he well tried obviously to fight the the sand people on on his own but he one couldn't do it and needed that that help from Steven so I feel like Steven fulfilling that role that Mark was and the opposite kind of let them balance out a little bit more and that like Steven kind of made it like an ultimate sacrifice for Mark which yeah. kind of like cemented that yeah because like I think in ways that Steven was created to like sort of protect Mark in a, in a sense yeah so yeah he did fulfill he I think he had just him like you mentioned him doing that and making that sacrifice kind of fulfilled his role mm-hmm. as protector so it's like boom Mark is good now yeah I've also, you know, seen those theories of, uh, well, it balanced because now there's only two and there were only two hearts there and Jake somewhere else. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I believe that one. It could be it. But I don't know that I believe that. But <laughs> The feather was rigged. The rigged. feather was rigged. I want a new feather. <laughs> On to this next question that we've seen a lot of is, yes. is Steven dead? And this question... I, I feel like I could approach this in a way where I am very, very shitty about it, I guess. Gosh. <laughs> but I'm not really going. Really nice. But here, I'm going okay. gonna, gonna, gonna to be nice. Nice. But, but yes, I've seen this question a bunch. I've seen people on the internet argue just mercilessly with each other about this question. Someone's been super entertaining, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Shout out to Reddit. Yeah, Reddit and Twitter with this like <laughs> oh my god people have been going like going to war over this question and i'm i'm like guys it's not that deep um, <laughs> it it's it's really not that it's not deep enough to argue it's deep enough to have a nice thoughtful conversation about so is steven dead i'll answer this with the same answer that i i gave elizabeth earlier when we talked about this before Yes, but not for the reason why you think Stephen is dead. Stephen is dead because Mark is currently dead. Bom, bom, bom. And that's it. Did Stephen, if you're asking, did Stephen die when he went overboard into the sand and froze in place? Then our answer would be no. Maybe a better question is, 
is Stephen ex- does Stephen still exist? Dist. Yes. Yes, he and then, does exist. Yes, I but I have seen specifically people argue, did he die? And like, it's just gonna be Mark now? No, that's not how it's gonna work. No, it. I mean, and that like we're basing that off of our knowledge of the comics, but. You know, obviously MCU could go a different way, but I think if they would like legitimately erase the existence of Stephen One, that would be a disservice to the character of Moon Knight and Mark Spector, and also a disservice to how DID is is handled because that's just not how that works. Yeah, you don't just necessarily cure this by being like, you know what, I didn't have a good childhood. So like them saying that would be that would be wholeheartedly unrealistic, and they would be subject to the. Uh, you know, the, the the wolves. But I think like like if we wanna really take a look at this, what we would go our evidence is just the Lemire run. The Lemire run had a moment where Mark confronted each one of his alters. Spoilers. Yes. Hey, read the Lemire run. But hey, the Lemire run does have a moment where Mark confronted each one of his alters and he basically was like I understand that I have uh, dissociative identity disorder and I'm going to deal with it the best I can. But like I for right now, I need you guys to go away and like they all disappeared and then they immediately came back like Mark deals with his his dissociative identity disorder the way he as best as he can and the point of it I always felt felt like were was that his alters aren't a sign that something is necess- is wrong with him in the way that people would think like Mar- Mark and Moon Knight and all of his different alters have kind of grown to work together in a positive way doing a mostly positive thing for their community a lot of people die when you know Jake goes crazy only the bad guys, though. But, like, they all support him. Like, Mark does have this, um, you know, Mark does deal with this. But um, it's also a source of strength for Mark. Mm-hmm. So going back to that original question, did Stephen die? No, Stephen didn't die. At least we believe Stephen didn't die. And... I would say that we're like 90% probably right. Basically, no, Stephen didn't die. But if we're wrong, I'm going to riot. <laughs> I will not and eat a so shoe. Will the, and so the internet who has become like loves Stephen to death. I will uh, write a very angry worded letter to Kevin Feige. But <laughs> just because Mark balanced the scales and accepted what happened to him in his life is not his fault. Doesn't mean that Mark still doesn't have his disassociative identity disorder. Steven is still something that Mark created. And even though that Steven is potentially currently frozen in sand, doesn't mean that he's never coming back. Yes, because he is still a part of Mark. Yeah. So I would say a resounding no to the fact that is Steven dead. Unless you're talking about is Steven dead because Mark is dead, because then I'd say, yeah, because... Yeah. (laughs) One of them is not allowed to be alive. (laughs) When the other one is... Well, Stephen is not allowed to be alive when Mark is dead because that would open up 
a whole lot of questions that nobody, no writer wants to figure out. Mm-hmm. But that hits, uh, you know, that gets us to the final thoughts of this tremendously special episode of Moon Knight and Night Night Spectre. I think for me, my overall thoughts, my final thoughts, this episode made me feel a lot of my feelings. Some that I definitely wasn't prepared to feel going into this. I myself, you know, have experienced some things that have mirrored what Mark went through in this episode, but I continue to be completely impressed with how this show handles the development of its characters and, like, its visuals for everything that it does. It's just really good art. And I'm going to be really sad to see the show end, and I cannot wait for the last episode. Yeah, I would say that uh, the thing that I'm most impressed about this whole series that continues on in the show is how um, how honest they are with how people view things, how people treat themselves because of their experiences and the experiences that shape people in general. Like we've seen, uh, we you know we've seen people call Mark unwell and say he was broken. Um, we've seen, you know, we've seen all of these different uh, viewpoints about Mark or uh, perspectives on Mark that were manipulated to make him look like, you know, he was just this either terrible person or this person that just doesn't have control over their, over his life. But at the, but when, what we come to find out is just Mark is just like anyone else. Mark is just trying to live his life and he is just dealing with uh, the effects of the people around him. And it's not something that just goes away because you grow up or you get independence. It's something that um, if you don't take the time to talk through it or, you know, seek help, it'll affect everything that you do. Absolutely. And so the best thing, you know, the best thing that, I mean, the thing that this episode shows us is the best thing that you can do is, uh, you know, if you're, you know, facing any sort of like, you know, trauma, instability, you know, et cetera, um, is to either, you know, find a good support system and find the proper help. Yeah. Reach out to people. You are not alone. And with that, this is the truth learned, that being Moon Knight is not a curse, nor a state of penance. It is simply who and what he was always meant to be. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show. And be sure to connect with us on Twitch, Instagram, and Twitter, at lore underscore party. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you under the blue moon.